Hi, everybody, and welcome to another episode of the Samwise Yaboinski podcast. It is great to have you back. Sam, how are you? I'm very well, Chris. How are you? I'm doing good. I'm doing good. The sun has just come out. It's been cold still, but now we just have these moments, these peaking moments of spring, and that's always exciting. been really great to be back uh it's a sunday so we're just fresh off of fresh off a of church which turns out is sort of good for you well, still feeling nice. that vibe from church yeah, yeah. exactly, exactly. <laughs> riding the vibe from earlier and we are excited to have jess hicks with us today um for so many reasons jess is one of these incredible volunteers who's done so many different things and i'm working together with in so many different ways right now um, but is has lots and lots and lots to share. And so we're really excited to have you here. Thanks for coming. Welcome, Jess. Thank you. Thank you both. It's so good to see you today. Yeah. And so we've been starting off with just hearing a little bit of how you came to First Church, how you came to Unitarian Universalism, sort of what was the uh, journey that brought you here? So we moved to Belmont about 10 years ago from Somerville. Uh, and our children were young then. Um, we had two that were uh, turning eight the day that we moved in. Uh, and we had our youngest was five. So we wanted to get them into the community very quickly. And we asked around a few neighbors, how do we get to know people? You know, they're going to start school in the fall, but we don't know anybody. And they said, well, you know, you might want to try First Church, especially since your kids are into music. There's this great music program there. And I was like, oh, well, that sounds good. Right. So we contacted the church and Alpha got her hooks into us right away. <laughs> <laughs> she was like, oh, three. Okay. Yes. <laughs> um, so we were in that very first musical. She made an exception. Usually she doesn't take the kindergartners, but at that time she didn't take kindergartners the musicals but Hank was in the musicals as well we had three junior inquisitors because it was the Mikado that year <laughs> yeah and that was all it took right so so, so instantly I knew all of these parents um, Alpha uh, did not let you not volunteer for right. a lot of things um, right. so if your kids were in the play you were sort of in the play, right? So that was the start. Um, from there, uh, I can't remember who was doing, um, like the, the person who helped us sign the book. Oh my goodness, I can't believe I can't remember his name. Jim Staten, yeah. Jim, yeah, yeah. yes. Them met us pretty quickly there on um, and, and uh, you know, mentioned the book. And we're like, oh, you know, we don't usually sign things, but okay, we'll just sign the book because he was so nice and he was so welcoming. <laughs> so we signed the book without even realizing what we were doing. Uh, wow. I mean, we knew, but you know, like yeah, yeah, yeah. without giving it a ton of thought, we're like, yeah, we'll sign the book. The kids are in, you know, we're in. Um, and, and that was all it took. We um, really loved that welcome. And it really felt very good for the kids. The kids 
did know a lot of other children at school starting out, which was great because, you know, the twins were starting in third grade and a lot of friendships are already made and they were the new kids, but they didn't feel like the new kids when they started. Mm. Yeah. Mm. And where did they go to school? They were at the Burbank. And then had you been Unitarian Universalist before or was that new here? Um, So I grew up Catholic, uh, but there's an asterisk on that. Uh, We'll have to talk about that a little bit. (laughs) Um, And then when I met Fred, Fred was a a very, um, I I like to say like a religious atheist. Like he's very dedicated to to atheism. Um, So we knew that we were going to have to find something very special if we were going to go into it together. And if we were going to indoctrinate our children into something, it would have to be very special. Yeah. So before we even knew that we were going to have kids, Fred and I have been together forever. So before we even knew we were going to have kids, we went to all these different churches together in the area. We lived in Somerville. So we went to some Quaker things. We went to a UU church in Medford. We went to um, a couple of churches in Davis square, just all over Mm. the place, trying to find the place. And we didn't find the place uh, mm. until we had that extra push from having kids and moving to the right. town. And of the things we had tried, Fred really liked the Quaker church. The one there's a couple of different flavors of Quaker, right? So he really liked the one where you just go sit and be quiet. Yeah. Mm. Um, but he found that he could sort of just sit and be quiet at the UU church, and and that was going to work for him pretty well. And sure. yeah, yeah. He loved the the Quakers. You know, all the things that we hear about our church that are Mm. special. Yeah. Mm. So wait, what's the asterisk? (laughs) About Catholicism? Oh, Oh, my goodness. I'm going to say like the (laughs) Catholic or (laughs) Catholic. So I grew up in Florida, in Central Florida uh, in the 70s. um, And it was uh, not a very diverse place at the time. I mean, there was there was at my school, about half black students and about half white students. But beyond that, there was not a lot of diversity. So a lot of diversity, but in one direction, right? Mm. Yeah. Being Catholic was to be an outsider down there, which is a completely different thing for people who've grown up just about anywhere else. (laughs) It seems like, you know, certainly compared to here. Um, We still had occasionally people breaking into our church and vandalizing things and, and, I still was bullied at school um, when kids would find out that I was Catholic. Um, wow. I was called an idolater and all of all of that stuff. An wow. idolater. I was an idolater. I was going to go to hell. I was wow. told. Wow. So I was like a third grader. I remember this as a right. third grader. Right? And and look at you now, even yeah. more idolatrous. Oh my goodness! <laughs> I, I wish the Podland could see. I have my uh, idols all next to me. This is my yoga room that I'm in, so and I've got go them all it. lined up. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> but no, but not to make fun of it. That must be hard when you're little to be, you know, yeah. called anything. But then, especially something like that, it's like oh, it was I'm going really to hell. Yeah, it's intense. It was really hard and it was really scary because their versions of hell in the in Southern Protestant churches are no joke, yeah. right? And so when they would tell yeah, me yeah. what that meant for me as a young, impressionable thing, that's terrifying, you know? Yeah. Um, but but the the actual part that is interesting is because I had this sort of like, well, I love the church, I love the organ, I love the stained glass. 
I loved the ritual of going to church. I did not love Sunday school where we were not encouraged to ask questions or have thoughts that were outside of what they were telling us to think. Mm. Um, If I wanted to skip church, my father, who was also not really Catholic, only Catholic so that my parents could get married, would let me skip Sunday school and church if I read a book, a religious book from another faith. Mm, And he had all these books, not all, but, you know, a small little space on a bookshelf of books that I could read instead of Sunday school. So I almost had my own building bridges that I could go to as a little kid. Do you remember any of the books? Um, I read, uh, I struggled through, um, uh, oh my goodness, the yoga, the one that everybody reads about the uh, autobiography of a yogi, I think. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I should have brought my list of of titles. Um, There was a Gibran. You're going to definitely have to Gibran. You sound really smart. Do you know who I'm talking about? Yeah, (laughs) Khalil Khalil Gibran. Yes. And it was like poems and like religious poems. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, Palestinian. What a fascinating parenting technique to be like, you can skip this church that I kind of don't like, but only if you read these books that I really do like. Oh my goodness. And Chris, I lived I on it. a farm. I lived on a working farm. This was our family's homestead because what? Florida was like the West. You could get a yeah. homestead act in the late 1800s. Wow. Um, and our family did that. And so we had this, what was left of this family farm with orange groves and uh, oh. there was a cedar grove. And I would take the book and I would go oh. sit outside mm. under a tree. Oh my God. And orange trees are my favorite. Sam, have you ever been in a place with orange trees? I have actually. Yeah, actually oh in Orange God. County in it's California. The most beautiful <laughs> smell. I lived in a house that had this huge, amazing orange tree. And I want to say it had oranges most of the year. I mean, it was really in Central Valley of California. Oh my God, it was the most beautiful smelling, tasting, just amazing. I can mm. only imagine a whole grove. Wow. Mm. So I'm reading these religious books yeah. with this, the perfume of the orange blossoms in the shade <laughs> wow. of the tree enfolded wow. in the arms of these yeah. ancient trees that I, I loved. They weren't that ancient, but to me, they were ancient. Mm. Yeah, yeah. And it was so much better than going to church. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, my goodness. It was so much better than going to church. Than that church. That's <laughs> basically yeah. That church. Yeah. Wow. And is that sort of the beginning of your yoga journey then, too, right? Yes. Kind of philosophically, anyway. Yes. So I was reading, I had read the yoga sutras as part of that. Um, and I had read some of Bhagavad Gita, like, you know, but I'm a little kid, so I wasn't reading. I'm please don't think that I was reading a whole entire text, but if I read a chapter that counted as Sunday school for the day. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, so yeah, I had, Oh, and Carlos Castaneda, he's another one that my dad really liked. Um, yeah. And so I was reading all of these weird, trippy uh, things, too, um, that also I found to be quite scary. Um, but but being exposed to all of these different kinds of ideas, I was already doing comparative religions, right. which became a, a real passion of mine sort of throughout. Like you can follow a thread yeah. uh, to today. Um, yeah. And then when I got to be uh, about 16, I realized that I didn't have a typical body and I was experiencing a lot of pain in my physical body Hmm. Um, and did some yoga and realized that that was really helpful for the pain, the physical pain. And then also realized, Oh wait, and it's also helping 
with just the stress of being a teenager and being kind of an outsider in my small town, very small town. Um, I just felt so much better after doing the physical practice of yoga too. So I had up till that point only sort of studied the, the philosophy of yoga. But once I started doing yoga too, I was hooked. So that's yeah. where the, the physical practice of yoga came in. I kind of did it mm. backward compared to other people in the States, right? right? Often right. people right. come right. into yoga with the physical practice and then realize there's yeah. so much more to it. Mm. Uh, if you want to go there, I, I did it the other way. I was reading about it and yeah. then did it. Yeah. I, I ended up doing, so when I was in college at Boston university, I had, um, you know, all the yoga was free. Right. And so I was, you signed up for all this yoga. So I was doing yoga four or five times a week, you know, just found this great teacher, but the teacher fascinatingly was sort of a frustrated Zen Buddhist teacher. So she really wanted to be a meditation teacher. So all of the yoga had just this huge Zen Buddhist sort of flavor to it. And that was where she really, anyway, it was, so it was all woven, both experiences. It was all the physical stuff and then, but all the meditative bits too, but none of it really grounded in actual, you know, uh, yoga. It was all of the spiritual stuff. It's just totally Buddhist anyway, um, (laughs) which is, it was super fascinating. So wait, but it, it was great that you had yoga in, you know, central Florida. I mean, that's not yeah, a given, I, mean, I was right? doing it from a book. This was not, oh. I, there was nowhere to take from. So I had a book wow. with photos in it. Um, one of the books that I had as a text when I was a, a little kid even was, um, died recently, Iyengar, Iyengar, mm-hmm. um, his book that has all of the postures and it's almost like a, um, a encyclopedia of yoga postures. And then he also at the end has these um, a list of poses that he recommends. Right. So, uh, not a terribly safe way to learn yoga, but it was the only option I had to just wow. dive into his pic- pictures. And I didn't even really have a mirror, so I didn't know if I looked mm. like the, but you know, that's what I was doing. Um, that was all I had. So when did you have a teacher? I had a teacher, um, sort of off and on like you in college, we didn't have as much yoga offered at college as you did. Um, but I took yoga classes at college. That was my first teacher, um, in person at college. Yeah. I also had like, um, a VHS tape of yoga. <laughs> that's nice. way, that's dating me. Um, <laughs> yeah, and then eventually it. upgraded to DVDs. Um, but yeah, that's, that's how I came to yoga. That's super fascinating. I came to meditation in a similar way. Actually, since you mentioned meditation, meditation has been a huge, important part of the last couple of decades for me. And I um, always think that this is worth telling folks because I started meditating by just reading books about meditating and thought that I was meditating and, and realized only after doing that for about 10 years, oh, wait, I like this is not like thinking about meditating is not meditating and reading about meditating is not meditating. Same thing with the yoga. Like I was reading about it, but I wasn't doing it. Mm -hmm. I was reading about meditating, but I wasn't doing it. And doing it uh, just opened up this whole new reality. So what's the tradition of meditation that you practice? Is there a particular Uh, tradition that uh, that you have an affinity with or that you follow? I've tried lots of things. Um, I started with uh, like John Kabat-Zinn style um, mindfulness that was uh, intentionally separated from sort of the spiritual and the, the religious and found that that wasn't really, 
I mean, it worked for me for a while, but I was having all of this stuff come up emotionally that I didn't feel was getting, I wasn't processing it. It wasn't getting easier or better. Not that meditation has to, right? But I felt like there was this real sticking point around, okay, I'm I'm embodied and I'm noticing and I'm aware that there's all this really difficult stuff that I've saved up for decades that I haven't gotten through. And I wasn't getting through it with those techniques, even though I, mm-hmm. I was, I had teachers, I was going, I was doing the thing. Um, and, and the, the piece that changed all of that for me was getting into meta meditation, the loving kindness meditation. Um, and, and through, I had a, I had a process. I mean, I tried to do self-compassion first because that was what my teacher advised. You have to learn to love yourself before you can do uh, the world and all the other people that you, beings that you wish loving kindness towards. But I had, again, just a real sticking point with that loving myself part. I had a lot of stuff that I needed to work through. So I was able to come sort of, again, kind of a backdoor, I feel like I, I, I spent a long time offering the loving kindness to the other beings um, that felt much more natural to me. And then my teacher said, Oh, you know, that when you wish loving kindness to all beings, you're one of them. And I was like, Mm. wait, what? (laughs) You've been wishing loving kindness to yourself this whole time. And I'm like, Oh, so that was, that was the door there for that one. You're like, may all beings, but me be free of (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> right. And I was teaching yeah. it then too. And, and so, you know, it, it was really an interesting moment to be sitting with a group of folks who were deep in Shavasana. They're like blissing out and I can, Oh, I miss teaching in person. Like we were mm, saying, you were missing yeah. uh, being in church in person, right? Because you can feel yeah. oh, when yeah. people are dropping into that state mm, and, and yeah. you help each other drop into that state. I was feeling that compassion from them and I was feeling my compassion for them. And it was all getting sort of like this beautiful sort of symphony of compassion. And, and then that little message from my teacher hit Yeah. at one of those moments, I was just, you know, ruminating on that thought. I'm like, Oh, this, this feeling. Yeah. That makes sense. Oh, totally. I love Meta. So I was um, sort of mostly grounded in Vipassana or like insight meditation and metta is a big piece of, of, of that and a big practice. And I found, especially during the pandemic, um, mm-hmm. during these last many months, that's been just a big piece, especially when I've felt, you know, most adrift or most kind of wobbly, mm-hmm. it's just kind of where I would start is just with loving kindness meditation. There's even, there's even a video, not to plug the YouTube page, but there's a video where I sort of lead um, folks through uh, if people want to check it out. But there's also, I mean, even if you just Google it, like, you know, Jack Kornfield, lots of folks have really nice, um, but I've, I love that dynamic of being able to really focus on individual folks and, and then, you know, all beings and then yourself. It's such a nice, really grounded, really grounded yeah. practice. Yeah. You're right. It helps me so much when, whenever things are hard, I um, survived on it. When I had my cancer diagnosis, I, uh, you know, big things like that yeah. in an MRI when you're, or, or a CAT scan, when they're looking for cancer, 
Wow. You can do this practice and it is incredible. Uh, just incredible. It's the strongest yeah. thing I've had since I was a little kid who firmly believed that my Hail Mary was working, right? Like, um, right. Mm -hmm. uh, it's like that. To, it, it really feels akin to that to me. Um, I love, this is sort of a silly moment, but I love that the Hail Mary is also that desperation pass in football because yes. <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's like this super grounded Catholic spiritual practice, but it's also this like, hopefully very little chance this is going to work kind of pass. <laughs> yeah. It's funny that it's become the same thing. Um, so wait, yeah, you mentioned the cancer. When was that? Yeah. How long ago was that? That was 2015. Okay. Yeah. Oh my. So a long time ago and not long ago, anybody not who's a cancer ago. survivor understands this, right? Like, Oh yeah. Not yeah. Ago, so that was cancer of my tongue. This is, this pertains to church life too, because I had um, out of nowhere and still nobody knows why just one of those rolls of the dice that didn't turn out well for me. Um, a sore on the tongue dentist told me it was nothing. I was, you know, grinding my teeth or whatever. Um, and I was at a meditation retreat, a 10 day meditation, silent retreat. And I was just like, I can't stop thinking about this sore on my tongue. I'm doing the meta practice. I'm, you know, I'm, wow. I'm trying to get through, but, but there were just signs during the meditation practice, just like, like, I don't know, in like a Disney, I mean, a Bugs Bunny cartoon of like arrows yeah. pointing, flashing lights, like you have to attend to this. There is something going on. Mm. Um, so when I went and was more insistent with the doctor, he was like, well, we'll take the, you know, take a biopsy, but it's nothing. And then it was cancer. <laughs> you know, it, everybody was surprised. It was horrible. Mm. Um, but if I hadn't been, if I hadn't been at that retreat yeah. and hadn't had the time to yeah. really listen to what my body was telling me, I, could have had a different outcome. I think, um, you know, we caught it in time. It was still yeah. early, even though it, I had had this sore for a while, wow. but I had to stop singing with the choir. <laughs> That's why it relates to church too. Um, so I had to stop teaching. I, when I was about to go under the knife, the doctor, the surgeon told me, we don't know if you'll be able to speak or swallow or, 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 or eat, um, when you come out, because we don't know how much cancer there is. Uh, and they're like, okay, so count backwards from a hundred, you're going under. And I'm like, wait, wait, <laughs> like it was so terrifying. Wow. Um, but I came out and, and it was a very small, a very small, it was about a quarter of my tongue and, and they were able to, uh, do the surgery so that the articulation and the chewing and swallowing all still worked. But wow. Wow. The healing processes is such that you have to they can't put stitches in everything because they mm. want the tongue to still be pliable. And yeah, I wow. know. Right. Mm. Wow. Uh, so I had a long recovery of not being able to talk. So I was sitting on my couch. Um, people from the church showed up. They made one of those chains. I don't, oh, yeah. I can't remember. Meal train. Meal train. Yeah. So people yeah. were bringing the casseroles and, and people were showing up and driving my kids to like Kung Fu practice. And it was incredible. Yeah the way people turned out. But the thing that I missed and wanted to get back to so much was the teaching, the yoga teaching, but also mm -hmm. singing. Um, yeah. And when I finally got the clearance to sing, um, I went back to the choir and we were working on the song, How Can I Keep From Singing? Oh. <laughs> I 
Right. <laughs> so the whole practice, I'm just like quietly, oh. like tears streaming. and. Wow, I can just yeah. imagine. That must have yeah. been a very moving moment. That's but yeah, amazing. all clear, like all clear. I had to keep going every month or so to get checked yeah. up, checked up to make sure. Wow. All okay. Still all okay. Survivor. Wow. Uh, so you've been through point. a lot. That's a lot. Yeah. But the, really that meditation practice, I couldn't, I couldn't do yoga because you can't put your head lower than your heart while you're recovering from mm. something where you might bleed. Uh, I, I, I did yoga. I did, you know, seated yoga, but I couldn't do my normal, usual practice. Um, the meta was what got me through, uh, you know, waiting for doctors, waiting for, oh, the waiting during cancer treatment is so awful. Um, waiting to hear what did the biopsy show? What did that mm. CAT scan show? Um, all of that I got through with meta. That's amazing. And, and so then when did you start, when did you go back to school that you're in now? Uh, which school, the school that is work or the school that is uh, grad school? The school oh. that is grad school. The school that is grad school. Um, so uh, through COVID, I realized I could not be in my house with all of my people all the time, <laughs> which sounds <laughs> awful, but I think everybody out there in the world knows what I mean. Yeah. A lot of us Please. made that same discovery. <laughs> Please. Um, so I decided I needed to, uh, to heed the call from the school, uh, department here in town. Uh, they needed bodies in the schools to sit for teachers who couldn't come back. So teachers were still going to be remote, but kids were starting to come back hybrid. And, uh, I know you asked me about grad school, but actually it, it's through going back to work that this kind of work that I decided to go to grad school. So, um, uh, I went and I sat in the classroom while a teacher delivered content to students who were physically with me, but the teacher was distant through the computer. And I made sure that they were wearing masks and that they were, mm -hmm. you know, paying attention as they could to this chemistry teacher at the high school. Mm -hmm. So um, I did that for, for that entire hybrid season and realized, wow, I'm really enjoying being with students again uh, and, and being out of the house again. Um, but what I'd really like to do is go back to um, psychology, which is what I did uh, study for undergrad. Mm. So I looked into programs. There were at that time, there were a lot of online only programs, which is really the only way, especially during COVID, but really just with a busy life, the only way I could get back into school um, and, and, meet all of the requirements. So, mm -hmm. yeah, so I'm in a master's degree program now for clinical mental health counseling. Mm -hmm. I'm uh, finishing in my first year. So I'll probably be done uh, by the end of next spring. Uh, I have to do an internship and, and then I'll be ready to, to have a different career. Wow. And, uh, and, and how, you want to go into kind of private practice or you, what kind of, what, what, what does that what does that look like that what you want to do after it's really cool I can I can do a, a I'm on a path where I can get a school adjustment counselor uh, license so I can work in schools mm. and also be licensed uh, to practice to have private practice okay so okay. because I've enjoyed working with um, adolescents again 
um, at the high school. I really enjoyed mm, working with mm. them. I, I didn't want to give that up to go and have a private practice somewhere. Um, so this is kind of like the best of both worlds. And I can do this for a bit. And when it's time to slow down, uh, you know, um, I can keep a couple of clients here and there is what I'm thinking, almost like a retirement plan for somebody who's had a million jobs and doesn't really have a traditional career path. Well, good for you. I mean, as somebody who uh, suffers from very bad anxiety, I'm, I have, I always like to applaud people who are training to um, work in that sector and to help people, help people who are in need. Yeah. I I also suffer from really bad anxiety. So I, um, I am excited to be able to be in that position as somebody who I I think a lot of us who are in this work are people who have experienced it from the Mm. other side as well. Right. I Mm. I think that's why we're called, but um, yeah, this was also something that I wanted to do even when I was just teaching, just teaching yoga, when, when yoga teaching was my primary job, it seemed like people needed more the sort of counseling side of things than they needed the yoga. That's what they were coming after class. They were staying to tell me things like, well, you know, this, this sequence that you did was great. It really helped, but it brought up these feelings. And I'm wondering if you could help me with, with these feelings. And I'm like, well, I'm not, this is, you know, not what I'm licensed to do. Right. right? I wanted to be able to offer more to the students, um, students that I'm working with at the high school now, students Mm. that I've had in yoga, um, because that seems to be more of what people need. I mean, I could now in theory do yoga therapy, you know, once yeah. I am what I feel properly licensed to do that. Yeah. Well, and not to overstate the obvious, but we're in such a crisis point with youth, especially, I mean, so many people, but especially our youth are processing so much and just in such a kind of still unfolding trauma with, with all of this moment and, and all that we're facing. So, so yeah, it's great to, to be taking this up and, and be able to be there for them in Mm. the next many years, especially. Mm. Yeah. I really feel that being in the school with them. I think that uh, there was great pressure for us to go back to school, which in many ways does feel like the right decision, right? You know, people wanted that normalcy. Um, but what I get, what I hear from parents uh, about how, you know, it's been great for their kids to have this normal experience. It's from parents who haven't been in the schools during this time, like being right. in the school, it does not feel normal. Mm, right. uh, nothing of the past few years has felt normal. So um, I think it was really reassuring to some of the adults who weren't in the schools to think, oh, well, at least the kids are getting this normal thing still. Right. Um, and we tried, we tried to make it very normal, but you know, it's, it's, it's going to school in a pandemic. It's yeah. The kids have been really brave, really brave and also terrified. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And now we're seeing, yeah, I, I'm glad that I'll have some training to continue to work with them and to help. I'm hoping to do my internship actually at the high school. So oh, wow. I might still be working in the same community with the same folks, which would be great. That would be great. So the, the other piece I wanted to be sure to touch on was you, you know, we worked together on the LGBTQ plus Alliance here in town, but then also you were one of the first things we connected on forever ago um, was around anti-racism. And I know you're also serving in addition to the other gajillion things we've been talking about on the human rights commission here in town. Right. 
Yeah. So how did that start? I mean, you were talking a little bit early on about those early experiences in your in your school, but how did uh, kind of a awakening to anti-racism kind of begin and, and where's that for you now? It's another one that goes way back. This is probably because I'm a Southerner, so the storytelling is part of my blood. Um, <laughs> I remember being in third or fourth grade uh, And being in the office, I was going to pick something up for a teacher because I was that student who was sent on errands sometimes. And there was a student who was getting paddled. um, And it it was a a young boy that I knew who was black. And our, our principal who was doing the paddling was this big old white guy. And, and he, he was, it wasn't a gentle paddle, you know, not that there's such a thing, but he was beating that child and I saw it. Um, and I knew that there was some layer to it that was deeper than what I was seeing. Um, uh, but I couldn't put my finger on it. Right. And, and I saw lots of things like that. It was a really, uh, I've always been kind of a raw nerve. My mom used to tell me I was too sensitive, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but I would I would feel and see things that other people didn't seem to feel and see. Um, and I would see my friends who were black being treated differently by the white people who had power as a child. And when I would bring that up with my grownups, they would they would gaslight that. They would say, "Well, you're just being too sensitive. It's not what you think it is. It's you know." Mm-hmm. <clears throat> So I I knew from an early age, though I also knew that there was some reason that white, white old adults, elders didn't want to talk about it. So then when I was a teenager and I had my best friend um, brought me over to her house, she was black and, and her mom, the very first question she asked me what music I listened to, and I told her Def Leppard. Again, I'm dating myself, right? Nice. <laughs> and David Bowie. Yeah. <laughs> um, she was like, yeah, but what black people do you listen to? And I was like, oh, ah. Uh. <laughs> and I, I just couldn't think of any. I did listen to them, but uh, at that house, we could talk about white and black. And, and it became clear, like from the very first question, um, yeah. it became clear, oh, we can talk about it here. Um, so that was a piece. And then I moved up North and I thought moving up North, everybody was enlightened and it was going to be just gorgeous and beautiful and everybody would get along and, um, lived in Somerville and, and, and there seemed to be, you know, a good mixing of people in our neighborhood But then um, Fred and I had this habit when we first moved here of hopping on the train and just going and just getting off at different stops. Right. And because we didn't know anything about anywhere. And this was before Google. Um, And we would get off at different stops and we say, oh, this is a different neighborhood. Oh, these are different groups of people in these areas of town. And, And realizing through that, that this was more segregated than anywhere I'd ever lived before. Yeah. And being so disappointed <laughs> because that's not what I thought was going to happen. Um, yeah. So that was another moment. And then, and then the real moment that really um, proved to me that I needed to do more than just donate money to different groups that I knew were working on 
uh, anti-racism stuff uh, was when Trayvon was killed and Trayvon was killed, you know, a few miles from where my grandparents lived when I was a kid. Um, and Trayvon was a boy and Trayvon looked like so many people that I knew and who are in my family. And, and, you know, I, like a lot of people, I couldn't ignore, not that I was, I was ignoring it. Yeah. I, I yeah. will, I will say it that way. Yeah. I was donating money, but I was able to ignore it right. until that happened. And then I could not ignore it. Mm. That's interesting. And we just had his anniversary of his death recently. Um, yeah. And every year when it comes up, I want to do, <laughs> I want to do more, you know? So, yeah. Um, mm-hmm. yeah, that was really hard, but I, I was pleased. Again, the church comes up here. Um, Another reason that I love our church, um, when I was young and Catholic and skipping church, (laughs) and my mother would make fun of people who went to church to network. Uh, She said, oh, they're just going to church to like uh, stay after and talk about their businesses at our version of the coffee hour. I was going to say. Uh, yeah. <laughs> and so we never stayed, right? We never stayed for it. And so I didn't know what they were really talking about. Um, but, you know, Catholicism also has a social justice component. It's different yeah. than ours, but um, but that's part of it. So when we we got here to, to the church here in town and I realized, oh, you know, if I work with these people who are working on these initiatives, we have more power. And these people have been doing it longer. There's so many great people who have so much experience that they know who to call. They already have like greased the wheels. I've been trying to sort of like recreate wheels and and do this on my own and learning things from scratch on my own, but in community where you have more power. Mm. um, And that's what coffee hours for. (laughs) Um, (laughs) That too, you know, (laughs) right? Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Mm. And and so then how long have you, I know I've, I've felt the same thing. Um, collaborating with the LGBTQ plus Alliance and, you know, like Fran, Fran Yuan and oh Gladys goodness, yeah. who have been at it for just decades, yes. you know, just decades. I mean, Fran started it like, yeah. you know, how can you, yeah. And Catherine Bonfilio and, yes. Bama, you know, mm-hmm. against racism, like so many people have been working beyond Ferguson folks. Like we've had so many people working so hard for so long. It's really, it's really, Mm. wonderful to get to collaborate and 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 so i wonder this moment in the work of the human rights commission this moment in anti-racism what is it you think that's different or what do you think that's dawning or what do you think that's changing um or what do you think we're kind of called to now uh i've been really excited that more and more people are learning about intersectionality which was even a new concept, you know, it was a new concept for me too, a few years back. Uh, And so I certainly am not an expert, but looking for those who uh, are uh, most affected by the systems of power, uh, who are most held back by systems of power uh, through those intersecting identities um, is what brought me, well, there's a lot of things that brought me, to focus on trans rights and the LGBTQ Alliance. Um, uh, 
so yes, anti-racism work and yes, uh, you know, doing everything I can for black trans women and disabled um, trans people, you know, like looking for those intersections and where people might not have a voice, where people might not have access to something like the Human Rights Commission that I serve on, you, you know, being able to have this privilege to just show up at town hall and tell them that I want to volunteer for the um, Human Rights Commission, um, right. <laughs> which not everybody, everybody doesn't know that we exist still, but, you know, not everybody knows right. that you can just volunteer and be on it. Like they're looking for people, right? Right. Um, I think that uh, what we're called to do now is figure out who's still not at the table. Yeah. Um, and and I, I think you know, we're called to, uh, some of us are called to get out of the way a bit. Yeah. yeah like yeah. I would love to give up my seat at the table yeah. to somebody who hasn't had a voice. Right. Yeah. Right. I just, I totally agree. And I, I really appreciate, it. I just read, and I think we linked it in some of the, one of the, Oh, the letter that I wrote about Ukraine, but there was this, if you, if you Google side with love, Texas, Ukraine. There was this beautiful article um, that somebody wrote about how the legislation around trans youth in Texas and and making, you know, gender affirming medical care available for children and youth, um, how that was linked to the sort of power systems that are creating war in Ukraine. And it was yeah. just a beautiful example mm. of what we're talking about, you know, that that nothing exists in a vacuum and that all of these, all of the right. work that we do in any realm for justice and freedom and peace, and all of this is woven, you know, mm. all of anti-racism is woven, all of this is woven together. And, you know, I think, I totally agree. I think this moment is is one of seeing those connections and, and not, um, you know, not being satisfied with with just looking at one thing at a time and yeah it's yeah. it's super hard but um i am hesitate to say hopeful um but i i am hopeful when we met with the lgbtq plus alliance with um the gsa the gender sexuality um what is it alliance i forget what they're yeah. called yeah, yeah at the at the middle school and there was 40 youth 40 youth oh, wow. in the room supporting each other, you know, and they identify in all sorts of different ways, right? But still 40 youth were there supporting each other, loving one another, showing up for one another. And that, I don't know, that was definitely a hopeful moment to see that momentum mm -hmm. and see those folks there together. So this is one of the reasons that I love working with the the youth at the high school is it's such a new generation. And I too, Chris, get a lot of um, hope from working with them because they uh, they understand intersectionality. To us old folks, it's new. And, you know, the concept is still, I stumble on it sometimes. But for them, even in a school district like ours that, you know, on the surface doesn't look that diverse, um, they are looking to create alliances across those barriers that I was seeing as a kid that were more like, you know, impenetrable walls, right? Mm. But the youth today, 
don't see it that way and haven't seen it. I don't know that they've seen it that way here. (laughs) We're in a bubble, right? But, but what I see at the high school, I see people who are willing to live pretty authentically as themselves out loud in a way that my LGBTQ friends in high school were not able to. I see their friends groups accepting that and uh, embracing that. I see um, I see students talking about mental health and their own struggles in a way, you know, I, I was taught to keep those kinds of things under wraps. We don't talk about that. You know, we don't talk about right. that we have anxiety or, you know, whatever our other um, things that we're working through might be. And kids in the classes that I'm in will tell a teacher in front of the class, will we'll say, I, you know, I, I didn't turn that in because, you know, I needed, I needed to take some time for myself. <laughs> like, wait, what? It yeah. just, it blows me away, but like, yeah. yes, yes. You needed to take yeah. some time for yourself. So you couldn't, yeah. I don't know. And, and they, they're just really open and also really not all of them, but a lot of them are able to speak out, speak out for each other, speak out for themselves um, in a way that I find really hopeful. And Chris, you helped me feel really hopeful. We First time we met, you told me that in this work, it's a, a marathon. I, I can't remember how you put it, but you told me that in this work, you have to celebrate the small things mm. because I was really frustrated about something when we were, we were meeting at the very first moment. Uh, something that I was working on that wasn't working out and uh, remembering in your voice, celebrate the little things has gotten me through quite a few things <laughs> where yeah. I'm frustrated. It's not moving as fast as I want it to. Mm-hmm. We could be doing mm-hmm. so much more. Mm-hmm. Ah, there's Chris's voice. <laughs> celebrate the small things. Yeah. Yeah. Well, certainly if, if anybody listening wants to dig into some of this work, either with the Human Rights Commission or uh, Belmont Against Racism or Beyond Ferguson or any of these groups or the LGBTQ plus alliance, we can, Jess or I can help you get um, connected to the folks who, who can bring you in. Yeah. Um, so one of the fun things in addition that we've been doing is if you have any questions for either Sam or I, you can. Mm. Uh, About you can anything. Anything. I have a question for you both. Um, you know, well, everybody doesn't know, but you two know that I'm very interested in gender. And um, it's one of the reasons that I enjoy being on the LGBTQ Alliance. So I wanted to talk with you both about gender because I'm always very interested in how people are performing their gender out in the world. And I'm really particularly interested right now in finding examples of folks who identify as men who are able to be different kinds of men than what we have seen sort of narrowly defined in our culture. Mm. So I view both of you as very open and compassionate and gentle beings. And I know that this must have been hard for you at some point. I'm guessing that this must have been hard for you at some point, because that is not necessarily how we have raised our boys and men to be in our culture. Do you have thoughts on that? Chris, do you want to, do you want to go first? Sure. I got to think so about I, I got to percolate a little was, more on this um, one. Raised by a very emotive, compassionate, you know, I was, I'm 45. So I was born in 1976. So I, 
I was definitely raised not quite, you know, my mother and my father, but really my mother and some friends of hers used to do workshops on like androgyny, right? So I was definitely, you know, raised in sort of gendered clothing. But if ever I was said, you know, oh, I want to wear this dress, they would 100% allow me to celebrate me, you know. So I was definitely raised in in a in a supportive uh bubble and 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 raised to be able to cultivate all the different aspects of my being and an only child and so um so my relationship with my mother was very central uh and I was raised in a the Framingham UU church zero to 18 and so I was raised in a very free to be you and me like you know I forget the name of you know Johnny has a dolly or something like there's some song (laughs) so like that was the soundtrack to my childhood was very much like you know all and I had baby dolls and I had tons of stuffed animals and I had you know so so they did they did all of that and you know I'm like a bearded cisgendered you know male who's like fishes and goes to the woods and you know splits wood and you know builds fires and and all these things so while I inhabit you know, well, and I should say, when I go to the woods to do all those things, I'm like the long-haired city-fied, you know, like, <laughs> like I'm not like right there with the hunters up in Northern Maine, you know, like they definitely are like, who is this guy? Um, but so, so I, it's, it's an interesting, it's an interesting balance to both inhabit, you know, inhabit all that. And I, you know, had long hair for quite a while. And so would be misgendered quite a bit from the back, you know, people would, I remember, the very first concert I ever went to with the very first girl that I ever loved, we jumped the fence at um, Great Woods to see Tom Petty. And she she had like done this a bunch of times. It was very cool. And I was like terrified to do it, but I was like, whatever, it's great. And, and we were sitting on the lawn. Um, I remember, and we were kissing and somebody walked by and they were like, ew, two girls, gross. You know, this was many years ago. We just chuckled about it for years and years because, um, but yeah, no, I've, so I've always felt really grounded in, and, you know, I also have my job as a minister is naturally one of gentleness and compassion. And, you know, it definitely calls out and cultivates and, and celebrates a lot of those, um, not necessarily traditionally, you know, um, male qualities, but so I've always, it's always been kind of a comfortable place for me. Can I add a question about your peers as a kid? Because what we found with our kids, we raised them to be gentle, you know, children and, and the peers didn't always accept that, especially when they were young. Oh yeah. You remember any pushback from. Oh yeah. Well, I, so I, again, I'm an only child. So all of my, you know, bumping up against other people was all in schools and stuff, but I remember the Fenn School in Concord, which is a boys' school that I went to for seventh, eighth, and ninth grade, um, was the first time I had ever hit anyone. And it was like, you know, again, this is all boys. It starts in fourth grade, goes through ninth grade. It's a wonderful school. I learned a lot. That's where I started to do theater. And so I grew in so many different ways and music and all sorts of great stuff. But walking the halls, it was like a, you know, action of endearment to punch each other <laughs> and give each other dead arms. Like, you know, you would hit somebody right beneath the, what is it, the deltoid, whatever the top muscle, and you could send a sort of numbness through the arm. 
And mm-hmm. I just had never had that as a greeting. And I was like, what is this place? Like all of these. And we were like in jackets and ties. And it was all this weird sort of New England prep school thing that I was dipping a toe into. And I was just terrified. So it was it was very odd, uh, this kind of performative, aggressive male. And it was all boys, like I said. So it was like just it was very strange to get used to. But, I, you know, I did. I mean, and I like I said, I did a lot of theater. So my central experience and my central communities were always um, sort of um, more artistic and more kind of, um, I don't know, supportive. And But yeah, it was definitely, I remember learning to punch people in the hallways that I liked. And I was like, okay, this is, this is what we do here. All right. <laughs> punch, <Yeah>. punch. <laughs> it was strange. Mm-hmm. What about you, Sam? I don't think I've got a lot of personal experience to talk through, but 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 I do uh, something that really interests me. Uh, I guess also worries me a bit is um, there's 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 this phenomenon that I sort of I sort of vaguely think of as gender fragility, a bit like a bit like the white fragility that that I think we've we've become more cognizant of in the, in, in recent years. There's um, you know in in uh, across America and I think where I come from in the UK and, and, and probably in other places too, there's a, there's a, there's a, a, a sort of very um, defensive posture of genders changing, gender roles are changing, gender expression is changing. And this is frightening. And this is, we've got to, we've got to push back against it or everything civilization is going to crumble or something. It's this very fragile, very, uh, very emotional and very defensive um it's it's not even really an ideology. It's very emotional, and it's and I and I see it a lot, of course, politically on the right, and and from a lot of uh, you know, it's in our culture, a lot of cultural commentators and and sort of um, people in the media, and and and, and of course in politics, um, there's this there's there's this uh, there's this fear that that men are being um, emasculated, um, and and. I don't really understand where it's coming from, but I've made the I've made the observation that we're a very small sample, a very a very narrow sample, which is that last semester I was uh, co-teaching a class at my university, and my students who were all um, first years, um, they don't they don't have that. They have a they they as sort of echoing Jess here, but they they're very very open minded and they're not fragile people, uh, not about this. Um, and this, this fragility that I, that I see in the culture that I read about, that I see on TV and so on. Um, I wonder if it's generational. I wonder if it's regional. I, I, I want to understand that better because I want to want it's, 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 you know, it's a culture war, which is a cliche, but, um, why are people so angry and frightened and defensive about men and women styling themselves in different ways, acting in different ways, expressing their gender in different ways? Why should that be a threat? I don't, I don't get it. Well, I appreciate what you say about it being, I don't, I don't think, you know, the, the piece that I see being generational is we, I've, and I've experienced in my own family, we, in the last two years, two of my nibblings, which is like my favorite word now, which is, um, you know, a, a non-gendered, my, my, you know, many years ago nieces, um, both uh, two of them out of many of them have come out as non-binary. And so now you get to call them nibbling, which is like just the most, that one. most yeah. adorable yeah. word, you know? Um, but the kids, 
the first, the youngest generation in the family made the switch. They were like, oh yeah. So they're non-binary. Great. Okay. So now we just, they, them, like, what are the pronouns? You know, they just like, boom, switched on a dime. And all of the rest of us, like anybody over 30, it's been like, oh, wait, oh, wait, what? It's a nibbling? What? It's a, what is that? What is that word? You know, and we've been like, oh, and everybody, you know, so it's, it's just a journey, but it's amazing the cultural assumptions that now, you know, all of so many of kids of that generation now have somebody in their immediate family, somebody one step away in their yeah. wider family yeah. who are either non-binary, trans, whatever. And so that's just part of the water that everybody's swimming in after, under a certain age. And there's no, you know, huge cognitive transition that, you know, my grandmother, my mother, who has had these grandbabies for, you know, decades upon decades upon decades, like that's a bit of rewiring in her brain, in her, you know, not young brain. And, and that's a different thing, but, you know, so I think generationally there is um, a bit of a difference um, just in the cultural assumptions and and the way things, you know, I don't know. It's also, also as the, uh, as the English professor in the room, um, I'm telling everyone who's listening, they, them pronouns can be grammatically singular. They just can. I'm sorry. <laughs> you know, um, someone knocks on the door and I say, uh, whoever's at the door, tell them to sod off. That's a perfectly <laughs> grammatical sentence, but them is grammatically singular. That's, that's, we've been saying that for hundreds of years. There's nothing wrong with that. Okay. Isn't it slightly unkind <laughs> to say though, Sam? Uh, yeah. <laughs> like, tell him to sod off. Tell him to sod off. Sorry, that's a British Tell the there. English teacher. Tell him to <laughs> Thank you so much uh, for coming on and thank you for all that you're doing, uh, both for the church, but then also for for our town and for the kids and for everybody. This has been a real joy to get to collaborate with you in so many ways and and looking forward to many, many more years of great work together. So yeah, thanks for thanks for coming on. Yeah, thanks for having always, me. Thank you, Sam, for everything. Thank you, Chris. And thanks so much, Jess. This was a wonderful conversation. It was great to, to hear more about your background and your spirituality and um, your good, the good that you're doing in the world. Thank you. And and little little Jess uh, reading the Bhagavad Gita in orange trees. <laughs> yeah, that'll stay with me. Yes. While skipping church. <laughs> <laughs> if I ever skip church, you can look for me under a tree. Well, not right now. It's a little cold for me, but yeah. Yeah, I'm under yeah, and if you've spot. never smelled orange trees, put it on your life bucket list because oh uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's a wonderful experience. Thanks, as always. Thanks so much for listening. If you have any questions you'd like us to um, wrestle with or dance around or with, um, you can email minister at uubelmont.org. We have a couple more wonderful conversations coming your way this season. Uh, but yeah, thanks again, Sam and Jess. Talk to you real soon.